Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In law school, I learned about bankruptcy, and one of the things that occurred to me is that if you have to borrow money to take a trip and then go bankrupt, they can't take the trip away from you. Our associate producer, Christina Onestot, here at Radio Curious, just returned from a six-week exploratory journalist visit to Ecuador, a favorite country of mine. In this interview, we talk with her about her adventures and what motivated her to take this trip. We recorded our conversation on August 29th, 2011. described yourself once as being an underdog, not accepting the title in life, yet being marked and moved by it. And I'm wondering how that self-characterization fits into your recent trip to Ecuador. Well, I think what I meant was being the underdog and not being limited by that, not letting that be the title of of my life, not letting that be my life story, and being empowered to create the life that I want. And uh, how that relates to what I do as a journalist is I go to where the people are. I talk to the people. I talk to the masses. And I listen to their stories. And I got talked to the official side of things, the government, the officials, the power, the status quo. But I also, it's very important to me to connect with the underdog because that's really where the story is. Because so often government, policymakers, big businesses make decisions that affect the lives of everyday people. And we don't really hear how, how political decisions impact lives. And that's what I do, and that's why I do what I do, because cause I have an affinity to the underdog. I, I know what it's like to be the underdog, and I know what it's like to, to feel empowered to create the change I want to see in my life. And, and I believe that communities have that power as well. And so by being a part of the media and sharing their stories, I'm partaking in that vision too. So you went to Ecuador as a part of the media, in many ways, self-propelled, self-financed. What stories did you hear? Well, I heard the stories of communities that have been impacted by oil pollution and oil drilling in the Amazon. And I heard the many different stories of communities resisting similar projects that the country, that the government is uh, undertaking with the support and the pressure of uh, large businesses like I Am Gold, which wants to to mine for gold in an area that's sacred to Quechua people and and campesino mestizo farmers in the region of Quimsacocha and uh, near the city of Cuenca. And I uh, interviewed people who are uh, resisting uh, new oil development plans. The Ecuadorian government wants to open up some five and a half million acres of rainforest to new oil drilling come in October. 
and I met with community indigenous leaders who are opposing those projects. I also uh, met a community that's going to be flooded out to create a dam near western Ecuador, and I, I spoke with them about why they're, they don't want to leave their land. Those are the kinds of inter- interviews that I did. Tell us what you learned. Let's uh, choose one, perhaps the gold mine. The Kimsakocha gold mine. What I walked away with, knowing, learning, was that Ecuador is a developing country, and there are many different standards of living there. There are very impoverished communities, and there are communities that are thriving and, and well-off and all sorts of other standards of living in between. And President Rafael Correa wants to increase the standard of living for his people in his country. And he's doing that by requesting more royalties or royalties for the first time in his country from mining companies. Uh, something like 5 to 8% is what he's requesting. And some communities are questioning whether that's really going to increase their standard of living. Uh, in communities where resource extraction has already taken place, like Lago Agrio, they have seen very little benefit from that process. There has been some job creation. Most of the high-paying jobs have gone to people from outside of the country who, are, who have studied engineering in, say, Spain, whereas the local Indian, Quichua, other tribes, local mestizos, you know, they get a lower ranging salary. I spoke with one man who's 31 years old and has lung cancer. He's never smoked in his life. He believes the lung cancer is from drinking oil-contaminated water in his community. That's at Lago Agrio. That's in Lago Agrio. Which means sour lake. Which translates into sour lake. Yeah, and, and Lago Agrio is a sour lake. The water is contaminated. There's massive oil pollution in the community. They've seen a, a strong increase in cancer rates over the past 20, 30 years since oil drilling has, has started in the community. And there's grave negligible business practices that happen in the name of money. And the community there, many would say they have not seen the benefits of oil drilling. They have seen the the costs, the real costs of that in their community. And there are other communities that are faced with new resource extraction projects that look to Lago Agrio and say, no thanks, this is not going to increase my standard of living. In looking at the oil extraction process in the Amazon jungle of Ecuador, Did you get any sense that there is a way of taking the oil out in a non-polluting fashion? No. And I spoke with a group that is working on creating a certification for responsible oil drilling, like Forest Stewardship Council type certification for the logging industry. And this group is called Equitable Origin. You know, one of the co-founders would say, There is no such thing as an oil project that is not going to pollute, essentially. However, there are business practices and responsible stewardship that oil companies can take to ensure the least amount of damage occurs. And that's what they are working towards. Who is the they? Equitable origin. They're very new. Are they having any success in Ecuador? Well, they're starting their pilot project this year, so it's yet to be seen. So let's talk about the gold mine and the extraction and what's happening with that. So I Am Gold is a Canadian gold mining company. 
They have some 55,000 hectare concessions to an area that's uh, called Kimsacocha. It's uh, in the highlands near Cuenca, the city of Cuenca. And this area that they're going to mine for gold also has copper, I believe. And it also has the headwaters of one of the main rivers that provides water to the city of Cuenca and some other nearby you know, towns, farming communities as well. Uh, the area also has uh, is called Tres Lagunas, and it has three pristine natural lagunas that have been sacred to the specific uh, Quechua communities in the area for centuries. It's rooted in the Quechua tradition. Over time, it has evolved to be a part of the Catholic religion that the Quechua and Mestizo communities practice. They pilgrimage to the Tres Lagunas twice a year, once in May, once in October, to pay homage to the Virgin Saint of Water. And they drink the water, they celebrate the water. This is a religious ceremony rooted in time immemorial in indigenous ways. And uh, this is where I am gold wants to mine for gold. So there's a mass massive resistance of community support against this project to protect these lands, to protect their drinking water, and to protect the Tres Lagunas. And one of the persons I spoke with, uh, his name is Carlos Perez. He's a lawyer in Cuenca, and he's an author. He recently published a book about indigenous organizing and indigenous resistance in Latin America. And he's Quechua as well. He's Mestizo Quechua. And he uh, was arrested about two years ago for opposing this gold mine. And he is now faced with 16 years in prison. He's since been released and he's fighting his charges, uh, which are sabotage and terrorism for organizing within his community to, to prevent this gold mine. And this is actually a trend. It's not just happening in Ecuador. What we're seeing is we're, we're seeing the governments, even what we would call, quote-unquote, left-leaning governments in Latin America supporting development projects, mega industrial development projects like gold mining, hydroelectric dams, major oil drilling projects by transnational corporations. And when individual communities come in and say, no, we don't want your pollution, we don't want these kinds of projects to come in and ravage our lands, the government turns around and calls them terrorists and enemies of the state. This is happening in Ecuador. It's also happening in Bolivia as well. What is it that the people do when they oppose the, these projects that result in them being called terrorists? What are their acts? In the case of Carlos Perez, it's uh, what we would call civil disobedience in this country. Uh, and sometimes it takes it to the next step as well. For instance, I met with Pepe Acacho. He is vice president of CONAI, which is a confederation of indigenous communities in Ecuador. He is a former vice president of FISH, which is a federation of indigenous Shuar communities. This is, this is the, the Shuar indigenous people in Ecuador. And uh, that FISH represents about 50,000 people alone. And they're a member of Khan Eid. And so he was a leader within FISH. Now he's the vice president of Khan Eid. He's faced with 16 to 18 years in prison for sabotage and terrorism. What did they do? They prevented the government from entering their territory by blockading 
the roadway because they wanted to build a mine. They still have plans to build a mine, the Mirador mine in uh, Shuar territory, which would impact one of the largest, most beautiful waterfalls in the country. So what they did was they blocked the street. The police came, there was a confrontation. Some of them threw rocks at the military. It was not the police, it was the military that arrived. Some of them threw rocks at the military. And what happened was one man was shot in the head and killed. The military shot a protester in the head and killed him, and it was Pepe Acacho's partner, his friend. What were they doing at the time this man was shot? They were protesting. They were blockading the road. They were preventing the government from accessing the land, their indigenous ancestral land. Since that time, has the government or other entities gone into their indigenous land? With the Kimsa mine, there is some building happening as the people are resisting as well. I visited another community that would be flooded out by a dam. 8,000 people will be relocated for this new dam in Ecuador. The Rio Grande Dam will flood out the Rio Grande community. They're building the dam right now, and the people are still living there. They're refusing to leave. So on some level or another, plans are still happening. The government hasn't given up on any of the gold mines, on it, on the Mirador mine, the Kimsacocha mine, the Rio Grande Dam, opening up five and a half million acres to oil drilling. There's resistance, there's some struggle. The government's not giving up though. Those, those plans are still in the works. And the people who live there? Well, m many of them are opposed, but not all of them are opposed. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Christina Anastad, the assistant producer and occasional host on Radio Curious. Christina Anastat was in Ecuador on a journalism venture for six weeks in the summer of 2011. She returned about a week ago. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Christina, I'm interested in what motivated you to go to Ecuador. And I know in conversation with you over time, you have talked about being the change you want to see in the world. And I'd like to know how this trip affected that desire of yours to be the change you want to see in the world. It's my hope that everyone has that desire on some level or another. I think that's really what will progress us as a human species. So what really motivated me to go on this trip was my New Year's resolution. The reason I had my New Year's resolution was because I was feeling pretty dissatisfied. I had had a friend who had recently committed suicide, and he left behind a young adult son and a daughter. She was like 10 or 11 when he died, and it just really ripped my heart in two. And you know, I had a father who died in a similar way, and I just, I really empathized with the family. And, um, and I really saw myself in that whole scene. It brought up a lot, and I just was fed up. I needed to do something. So my New Year's resolution was to travel the world. I wanted to go to Cuba and Tibet. And um, shortly after that, I went to a Buddhist workshop which was focused on giving people tools to help them uh, be the change that they want to see in the world. 
as within, so without. And there I met this woman who is working to purchase land in the Ecuadorian Amazon to protect it and conserve it. And she's a local woman here in Mendocino County. She's a co-founder of the Cloud Forest Institute. And she's also working with a group of scientists who are researching how to use mushrooms to clean up oil pollution in the Amazon. And I thought, God, that's a great story. That's where I want to go this year. This, this is, I want to cover this. This is amazing. This is a, it's a good story amidst a lot of muck, you know. And so, um, so we talked, and, and I, I raised the funds, and I, and I went. And as I was driving to the airport, I was, I was remembering, you know, my friend who, who killed himself and, and how sad I was. And I was thinking, you know, uh, am I running away from my problems? Am I running away from my sadness? Maybe I still need to grieve. I need to do some grief work or something. And as I, you know, as I got closer to the airport, I realized that this, I wasn't really running away from anything. I was really running to myself because I was making the ultimate testament of life. I was going to live. He wants to die. Well, you know what? I want to live. I want to live. This is, his death was a reminder that we get one shot in this one life. This is it. And so this was my, this was a way for me to say, I'm not dead. I'm not going to die. I don't want to die. I want to live. And so I went to the Amazon and I talked to a bunch of communities that are, that are struggling and, and, and living the best life that they can amidst uh, resource extraction and environmental racism and colonialism that has been around for centuries. And, uh, and I wanted to share their stories with people. And so that's what I do. That's what I did. That's what you do as a journalist. And what I'm interested in now is what you did as a single woman traveling by yourself, what those experiences were like for you in a country where you don't know the language and we're not familiar with the customs. I don't know the language very well. And it was a little, it was challenging. And at the same time, it, it, everything fell into place as perfectly as it was meant to. When I sent out an email to all the people that I know saying, hey, this is my project, my birthday's coming up, uh, this is what I want, this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to go to Ecuador, I'm going to report on oil pollution and community resistance in the Amazon. And um, I got an email back from a woman I know at KPFA who does Women's Magazine and whose friend was living in Ecuador. And she said, uh, she said, Christina, you should be, be in touch with her. So I emailed her and she happened to have a room for rent during the time that I was in Ecuador. So that worked out perfectly. She happened to know a group of translators. So I contacted her to connect with translators. And uh, then her roommate happened to know another translator who ended up being the best translator in the world. She was my translator my last week in Ecuador. And she was just, she was great. We went to the Department of Defense in Ecuador together. We went to the president's office. She was, she was wonderful. And she had worked for the Spanish embassy. So whenever the government told me, and a government official had told me a couple things about uh, some community resistance and what was going on. And afterwards, she said, you know, um, I've been to those communities and that was not actually accurate. So it was, it was perfect. And at times it was challenging because I am a woman 
and I have tattoos. So in a way, like many people, I think just looked at me, you know, and also there's just the whole idea of what I represent to them, you know, on the TV stations in Ecuador, most of the people are white. And there's a wealth that you see that most of the people in Ecuador don't live in that you see on the TV. And you see ads for Coca-Cola and Marlboro and stuff like that. So so I represent an idea to them that that I don't really fit in myself, um, and that they love and that they hate at the same time. And so it was a challenge uh, connecting with some people. My translator bailed out on me. My very first translator was uh, a young American man who found me to be a little too abrasive. And so uh, and that, that was a little challenging for me. Um, I had to go within and do my own processing around reclaiming my sense of femininity as well as my sense of masculinity and just honoring the power woman that I am and not taking it personally when somebody else gets triggered by that. Can you describe those two things and, and what it's like, sense of femininity and the sense of masculinity and the power woman that you are? Those sure. are three things. Those are three things. Well, one of the things I did was I did a plant spirit medicine within the Schwar community. And, you know, one of my first visions, it's kind of like a lucid dreaming. And, and I'm, a, I'm a pretty lucid dreamer already. So this was interesting nonetheless. And um, so this was, you know, about, you know, recognizing the masculine and the feminine within all of us, which is, you know, the masculine is more, for me, is more of the outer persona of how I interact with the world. And the feminine is more of the emotional persona. It's like the sun and the moon. And having an understanding of how they play out in my own life. Like, oh yeah, I have a masculine side that protects my emotional self. And that is important to have because the feminine has been so degraded in our society. Not everybody gets to know my emotional self. And that's how it is. And that's okay. If they don't respect the boundaries and the masculine part of me, they don't honor my warrior, they don't get, they don't get to meet the feminine. They don't get to meet the mystery. And I understood that on a very uh, visceral level through this plant journey that I went on. And I came out the other side more whole and more self-accepting and not blaming myself as, that somebody didn't want to work with me. It sounds like that alone makes your trip uh, a lifetime experience. It was a lifetime experience, and it was really good because after that I felt more grounded in my power, and I still had more processing to do about am I going to fail this journey? Am I going to fail the hundreds of people who donated to my cause? Am I going to come back with nothing? My computer broke down. I, uh, I didn't have access to about the first three to four weeks of uh, material that I had recorded, and so I was in another place of fear, another level of fear. Uh, fear of success. And so I, I broke down those barriers as well. And not necessarily breaking them down, but I came to terms with um, those parts of myself and loved them. And through all these processing, it really allowed me to be more in my power and more accepting and, um, and to claim, to claim what is possible for me. 
just like communities want to claim what is possible for their future. You know, we want to preserve the sacred land. Okay, you can drill over here. You know, what, what, what do I want to claim for myself and my future? So as soon as I, I did some of that internal work, things started really getting smoothly for me in Ecuador. I started lining up interviews back and forth, visiting more communities that are um, impacted by proposed resource extraction plans. And uh, I was finally able to land an interview with the government, which I'd been struggling to do for weeks. And um, so things really started coming together, and I was able to sell a couple stories to media outlets. And so, yeah. And I still have more work to do. Well, Christina Anastat, thank you for being in the guest chair here at Radio Curious. And tell us about an, a eureka or an aha moment in your life that you live by. Well, I, I would say... Um, my aha moment was when I was 14 years old, and I ran away from this group home that I was living in. And I decided at that point that I wasn't going to let anyone else tell me what was good for me or what I needed to do. I was going to figure it out on my own, and I was going to follow my heart. And what would you like to do with the rest of your one special life? I want to continue doing what I'm doing. Following your heart. Following my heart, which is to connect with people and the world through the use of the media. That's what I live for. And the other thing that I live for is connecting with people who struggle and showing the world that people have the power to create the lives that they want and communities have the power to create the lives, the future that they want. That's, that's what I live for. And those are the kinds of stories that I like to tell. And is there a book that you could tell us about? There are two books I recommend. The first one uh, roommate gave to me to take on my trip to Ecuador. It's by Alice Walker uh, called Now is the Time to Open Your Heart. It's got several really beautiful tales in the story. And the other book is uh, one that another roommate gave me uh, for my birthday. It's from one of my favorite astrologers, Rob Bresney. The book is titled Pronoia is the Antidote for Paranoia. How the whole world is conspiring to shower you with blessings. So instead of giving power to the negative and uh, believing in what's possible that's negative, pronoia is about giving power to the positive and what is possible within the positive, embracing the positive in life. Well, Christina, it's a pleasure to have you as a guest on Radio Curious, in addition to all the uh, work that we appreciate so much as the assistant producer. I hope that you never do go bankrupt, but as you know, uh, they can never take this trip away from you. Thanks for the interview, Barry. Christina Anastad is an independent radio journalist, the co-publisher of the Mendocino Country Independent Newspaper, and the assistant producer of Radio Curious. And if any of you are considering borrowing money to take a trip, I urge you to do so because remember, they can never take that trip away from you. 
This interview about her trip to Ecuador for six weeks in the summer of 2011 was recorded on August 29, 2011. The books that Christina Anastat recommend are Now is the Time to Open Your Heart by Alice Walker and Pronoia is the Antidote for Paranoia by Rob Bresney, B-R-E-Z-N-E-Y. Radio Curious programs are free at our website, radiocurious.org. Our phone is 707-462-6541. Email is curious at radiocurious.org. Stale mail is Post Office Box 7, Ukiah 95482, California. Christina Anastad is our associate producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.